what's old is new again. Natural wine is being reduced to a style, to producers putting their wines into clear bottles so they could show off the colors. But that's not the kind of wine that, that moves me. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Alice Firing is our guest today, and what a great conversation. Alice is a journalist and celebrated wine writer and the author of many great wine books, including Natural Wine for the People and the Battle for Wine and Love, or How I Save the World from Parkerization. That would be Robert Parker, and we talk about the major shifts in the wine world over the past decade, as well as her interest in the wines of the country of Georgia. But we also talk about her incredible new memoir, To Fall in Love, Drink This. I read it in two sittings, and there's so many great stories to cover from that book. What a fun episode, and great getting to know Alice Firing. Alice Firing, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I read your book in two days. Awesome. It, it's <laughs> great. To fall in love, drink this. I, I mean, I've never read any of your memoirs and any of your, your actual personal writing. I know you've had a few books, and we'll talk about the book mm-hmm. you wrote in 2008. But this book is, it really is a story of, it's a New York story. It's a Jewish story. It's a story about love. It's a story about heartbreak. It's a story about your mom. Mm, very much so, yeah. How is your mom? Uh, she's... Uh, every day is a different story, but she's fine. Thank you. <laughs> oh, gosh, I, I'm I'm pulling for your mom after reading. <laughs> what inspired? She's a handful. What inspired the book? What inspired the book was in the middle of the well, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I wrote a story for New York Magazine, an essay about drinking alone during the pandemic. And after it was published, my agent wrote to me and said, I want a book of essays. And I said, I've always wanted a book of essays, but who's going to publish them? And she said, oh, just shut up and do it. So I said, okay, you know, nothing else to do except do what I want to do. So I gave it a shot. That's what inspired it. I love it. We share an agent, Angela Miller. Shout out to her. Shout out. So Angela, to say, like, I, I want a book of essays. Let's just do it. I love it. These essays, the way they unfold, though, it's not, in my opinion, it's a, there is a narrative, narr- narrative mm-hmm. and, and you're, you're yeah. following threads in your life. Yeah, there was a narrative. So the thing is, you know, I, I actually haven't read a lot of memoir and essays, even though I understand it's kind of a thing right now. But I don't view my life, I guess it's all in the telling, right? But my life is being completely fascinating. And as people say, oh, write your memoir as a wine writer, I said, well, that's not what's that interesting. But so I've had some interesting episodes in my life that I think are would be fascinating to anybody. And they were extremely formative. So the notion was to take key episodes of my life, string them together into a life narrative of how basically I became me, uh, which how this short, red-haired Jewish girl from an Orthodox background became probably, well, to say you're, you're a con- controversial hmm. wine writer is is a paradox in itself because who is a controversial 
what is controversial mm. about wine writing. So it's basically what made me the person who attracted a lot of trouble in my life. I'd say fearless <laughs> is the word I'd say. Well, fearless you. wine writer because you, you do so controversy and, and that's a good thing. You create dialoguing and 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 spoiler, uh, there is a serial killer uh, in the yeah, narrative. Serial we will, killer alert, yeah. A serial killer. <laughs> we, we, I don't want to get actually get into that because there's a lot more to cover, but there is a serial killer and your interaction with the serial killer in 1969 yeah. or eight. Um, yeah, but it was really, I, I was going to say not to make it about me, but this is about me. It is about, about me. you. Stop it. <laughs> it's just, I, having been extremely painfully shy, it is really strange that I found myself in this position. And that is what I found to be the, the story, the interesting part of the story. Else, what gets you out of bed every morning to start writing? Because clearly you're prolific. Fear. Fear. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, if I if I don't write, who am I? I? I think a lot of writers might have that. Needing to make a living. Not having a safety net. But also, I think it's mostly about my identity. It is Writing is who I am. And so that's what does it. And you write every day? I write every day. And the firing line is your uh, is your newsletter, and you've you've published it well before there was a thing called Substack. Right, well before, in fact, people have been saying you should go over to Substack, and I actually nah. thought about it, and I'm like, why am I trading one paid platform for another? No. Nah. So I actually am using Substack as a way for people to discover me, and then I feed them over to the firing line. I, I I love that you're also a digital entrepreneur. You've been writing for yourself since 2013 in that way in well, the firing line. In the firing line, well, it started blogging. Oh, my God, you remember that? In I love 2004. That. Sure. I was goaded into that. Then I was goaded into going onto Twitter, the same thing. I've been dragged onto social media platforms. But I started this version of the newsletter, the paid version, uh, Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, and you write about the, the, the going to fetch your mom um, during Hurricane Sandy. And I love that your mom worked in the Diamond District on the Bowery. Yes. I, I bought my engagement ring in that Did in you? that market, yeah. Which uh which address, do you remember? Uh it was the one right off Canal, like just a block up north of Canal. Mm-hmm. So uh was it seventy two Yeah, Seventy two. That's, That's it. Right. I probably know the person you bought it. Susan from, from H K K M S. Yes. I know <laughs> everybody down there. Because <laughs> I I basically it's funny because I live about five blocks away from you there. You write about that, right. And it is like my personal terroir, even though I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Baldwin, Long Island. My aunt and uncle had a place at 66 Bowery, and we were always in the city. And that is really, those are my memories of going growing up, not really Long Island. So I want this conversation to, we will dive into wine and some questions I have about mm-hmm. the, about wine and natural wine and and. But I also, I really want to get into your journalism and your writing mm-hmm. because that really is the way I see you. I see you as a writer and not a wine writer, capital W. Let's talk about your travel because, you know, before the pandemic or maybe even now, you're, you're traveling like 80 to 120 days a year. Or, yeah. And I pre-pandemic. feel... Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. I'm working up to it now, but still, that's, that has been, that's what it should be. <laughs> when you hit the road... To cover wine or cover food or wherever you're writing about, what are you what are you searching for? Well, story. I have an idea of what. Um, obviously, you know, there are people who are experts in Burgundy, Bordeaux. I could care less about. Um, sorry, Bordeaux. Uh, <laughs> Shots but, fired. I love it. <laughs> but you know, they. But basically, there are enough people covering that. Sure. And 
I am looking for wine for the people. I am looking for stories of the people. I'm not looking for necessarily, I hate doing wine recommendations. In fact, that's why I started the newsletter, just because I hate it. Mm -hmm. And if people want recommendations from me, they're going to have to pay for it. Sorry, guys. Um, And, you know, I'm good at it. I'm good in... But it's so I'm looking for people doing really interesting things, beautiful work, beautiful agriculture, and something that has maybe a bit of a different hook. So when I started writing about natural wine, the world was open. Everything was a story. And now it's not that new. No, it's hashtag natty wine. Exactly. Which and, is the whole thing. And so when I found <laughs> Georgia, it was like, yeah. oh, my God. So you go, you have an idea, or you have a list of people who are doing new stuff. Uh, interesting. One thing leads to another. I sometimes I go with a specific story. Especially, I try to give myself that assignment. Yeah. Like um, the last time I was in Burgundy, because I do go to Burgundy and I find what's happening in Burgundy extremely interesting. But I went there to find out why would anybody want to make wine here, which may sound like a strange question, and that's coming up in the next newsletter. Mm-hmm. But if you're starting out, why does anybody in their right mm-hmm. mind, if they don't have money, Go to Burgundy to make wine. It's crazy. So um, things like that. You write extensively about Georgian wine over your career. I was hanging out with a four-and-a-half-year-old and looking at a map. And how do you pronounce the capital of Georgia? Tbilisi. Tbilisi. Sorry, thank you. I just had to ask that right away because I, I just— Or if, like, or Tbilisi. Tbilisi. <laughs> so no T in there. Okay. Right. You've been called the Patty Smith or the Ruth Bader Ginsburg of natural wine. Right. I have to laugh and ask you, I what does that mean? Too. I don't know, but— <laughs> Um, I guess Patty Smith being rock and roll. Sure. Uh, and being, and I think for both of those people, not afraid to be outspoken. I agree. And I, I think that's what I read from it too. I also read that there is immense creativity in your writing. They're both writers. And I think that's what the mm-hmm. connective tissue is between those two references. Pretty pretty cool though, right? Have you met? Very cool. Did you get to meet either of them? No, I haven't. Oh man, but Patty Smith is a wonderful writer. Yeah, I, I like her Beautiful. first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just kids. Just kids. Well, that, I mean, Fabulous. you were you were in New York in that in that around in, in like the late seventies. Yeah, just about to head up to Boston. I left for Boston in seventy seven, but but I lived in New York, trying to find the door between 76 and 77 in Manhattan. I just mm. could not figure out how I, I I know I keep on thinking where is the door? Where is the door to New York? Mm-hmm. Even though you were born here and you Even had family. I was, well, I had no connections. I wasn't going to go in the jewelry business and I certainly wasn't going to be a lawyer. Right. So, but you worked in uh healthcare yes, over your course of your your I did. career. I did because I was a dancer. Yeah. And so I got my masters in dance therapy up right. in Boston. And what happened there, oddly enough, when I was writing my master's thesis is when I went back to writing and I just didn't stop. Didn't stop. And it took about six years to get the nerve to decide to come back to New York. And then it took four years to figure out how. You Speaking of Boston, you write in, in your book about um, an evening spent with Nina Simone. Yes. And serving her, bringing a bottle of sparkling wine. Um, you can talk about what you what you brought for her, but I have to ask a little bit about that episode. But and also, who have you also shared classes with? Not a whole lot of famous people, or just interesting people. It doesn't be super. Oh, famous. in the wine world, I yeah. mean, it's just it's mostly in the wine world. Yeah. Like people like Pierre Auvernois, like who gave me a book party was probably <laughs> one of the most exquisite 
evenings of my life. You know, it's like kind of legends like that, Marcel Lapierre, uh, mm-hmm. some yeah. of the original people in natural wine movement, um, like Jacques Nepore, who lives in a tiny little village on the Ardash, and that was an epic mm. 10 hour afternoon. Uh, it was so people like that. I, I don't really do the celeb world a lot. But back to Nina, because that seems like it was a moment in your life where you're just starting to think about wine as the, the power of wine. Um, right. You know, engaging with bringing a bottle. You brought a bottle to a concert she held, which seemed to go kind of poorly. Well, I kind of knew there would be an after party, so Mm -hmm. that's why. But yes, the party went the 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 concert was a little bit of a disaster. So it was Hmm. basically a first date. Yeah, actually, and there were a bunch of actually going back. Aaron Ziskind, Mm. the photographer Aaron Ziskind. Yeah, um, I also spent time with. He was fabulous. But so this was a first date of photographer who had been old friends with Nina. And I thought, okay, so we go to her, well, her hotel suite, and she starts to, to, you know, like, decide not to go to the concert. And her producer's on the phone to Nina. There's 2,200 people waiting. There are 2,200 people waiting for her, and we're an hour and a half late. And I finally, I finally take out my mental health toolkit. Yeah. And uh, kind of encourage her to go. So that story is in there. And uh, yeah, so th- that was it was thrilling because at that that was the point where I had decided that I, I had to be a writer. There was a very I was going to go back to New York the following year. I was going to figure out a way to do it and meeting her was being near an artist like that who lived her life fully for her art and also social justice had a great effect. And you write about the after party and having an interaction with another jazz le- legend. Right. Yeah, Freddie Hubbard. <laughs> Freddie Hubbard, yeah. You write about an incident that seems quite traumatic. It wasn't traumatic. It was just because I got out of it. But it was more like it was uh, – here is where a generation probably – is different, and my generation, if somebody's coming after me, like, trying to, like, kiss me, yeah. like, it's, and I get out, it's like, oh, my God, Freddie Hubbard just tried to, like, really, like, come on to me in a very Locked persuasive way, like yeah. me in the bathroom. But, um, I know, there was no force involved. I hear you, and I hear what you're saying. It is a generational moment, and, and certainly uh, uh, there's... The way you cover it is is just the way you, this book flows, and it's just so effortless. Uh, the stories that you have, and I just love the I love the way you write, and and it goes also back to Robert Parker. I wanted mm-hmm. to segue to that because mm-hmm. I think in two thousand eight, you took on Robert Parker. You were the Robert Parker Slayer of sorts. I love that. You, yeah, the way you said that, the Robert <laughs> Parker Slayer. For our audience, I, I'd like to set some context because mm-hmm. I would like for you to say. In 2008, what what book did what did you write, and and how did it change the way we kind of write about wine? Okay, so for the listeners who don't remember who Robert Parker is, he was and still might be in a certain world the most the world's most famous wine critic for about 20 years. He did a lot to um, well, people used to say democratize the wine <laughs> world, which is kind of funny. But he developed a newsletter, The Wine Advocate, that became immensely popular. And 
if he scored a wine like 95 to 100, it would immediately sell out. So he had amazing economic power. This power greatly influenced my ability or affected my ability to get a wine that I wanted to drink because most winemakers in the world and most regions in the world were trying to manipulate their wine into a wine that he Mm -hmm. liked, which quite frankly was big, powerful, and oaky, the antithesis of an Alice wine. So uh, I had already written, well, it was one book, but I wanted a book. And I thought I would write a book about natural wine. And I remember going to, looking for an agent who threw me out, basically. And I can't sell this book. And it's like, nobody wants to read this. This isn't the book you want to write. And she thought she knew what I wanted to write. But she was right. I, this was not the book I wanted to write. I felt nobody would listen to me if I wrote this book in my own voice. Mm. I was going to write it as a reported book. Yes. And so I probably, I just, um, I remember going to ballet class, leaving half through the class because I knew exactly I had the name of the book The Battle for Wine and Love or How I Saved the World from Parkerization I love that title so good this was the book of how the Robert Parker effect was wiping out the wines that I felt were the most important ones in the world and I was going to write it memoir like yeah that's your style and and that book is it covers uh, the power that you you speak of and then this this gradual switch away from those bold wines mm-hmm. and and to this day now into the current era we've kind of reversed right. our taste right so i have to follow it up because now in 2022 you know there is a cult of alice and i have you're very understated and you're very modest in this interview but you really have your fans and you have a lot of power your newsletter is well read so now after taking on robert parker how do you feel about this dichotomy now that there's you <laughs> The cult of Alice firing, and you—you you are a version of Robert Parker, not the no. same style. Not, nor do I have the same power, and uh, which is a very good thing. Yeah, which is beca- because it was getting so close to one world, one taste, and now there's much more diversity. So, yes, I have my fans, though you know especially in the past two years, I haven't seen much of them. So hmm. it's hard. It's easy to forget that they're out there. But every time somebody signs up for the newsletter, I go, wow. Great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ding. How many subscribers do you have? Uh, I have a, it's not earth shattering, but 800. Oh, that's good. I mean, it's, it's but it's influential people in the industry. And- it's great. You know, it does have power and, uh, and it has, you know, just normal readers, a lot of industry, um, a lot of people looking for good leads. So there's a lot of travel stuff in there, travel food. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you've reviewed restaurants and you've mm-hmm. your food writing. I'd right. love to collaborate with you on a story one day. That'd be great. It'd be really great to, to work on some some food writing. Um, let's shift to to wine. Like let's for our, for okay. our listeners, there's a lot of context uh, to provide um, and a lot of nuggets that you can gain from reading the book and there's you say you don't really give bottle picks in the in your articles, but you have some bottle, bottle picks. In yeah, the, in the, it's a staple. Yeah. I do a lot. I do a lot. I have over like 1,500 wine recommendations at this point. Wonderful. And and so let's talk about Americans. Americans are conditioned to buy the grape, right? Uh, yeah. Which, you know, is such a ooh. disservice, right? And I, I know, right? Ooh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of similar. I write about coffee quite a bit, and I think buying the country is quite 
the same kind of the same idea. It's like you buy the grape, like uh, you know, people want to buy a Merlot or people want to buy. I mean, it, you could name the grape Sauvignon Blanc in particular, Malbec. But like, why is that wrong? It's wrong because it doesn't tell you anything about the wine that you're going to get. Not a clue. In fact. If somebody comes in and they order by the grape, if you order Chardonnay, you expect something oaky and fat and low acid. If you order a Malbec, you are ordering something from Argentina, even if you don't know. Hmm. If I gave somebody ordered a Malbec, something from Cahors, which was the same grape, they'd be shocked. And it's also completely, it has no curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's And so maybe it's fine to order by the grape for a person who wants to know exactly. That person is not necessarily going to be interested in a wine with a lot of expression. They're interested in a beverage. They're interested in a Coke, a Pepsi. And that should be fine, mm-hmm. except if that person really is curious. And this happens a lot. And they go, wow, you mean the home of Malbec really originated in southwest France, yeah. honestly? Like, what is that like? I'll tell you this. It's not a fruit bomb. Yeah. And wait, Chardonnay from the Jura? Yes, I think Chardonnay from the Jura is probably the most extremely beautiful expression. Really, what is it like? It's kind of like lean and angular and it sparks and it's kind of salty and like, no kidding. Which and, is not what you're going to get in California, obviously. No. Same grape. No, so it just, it limits you to as if you, you know, as if it's all the same, but it's not. I There's love, a whole world of speaking wine of Jura, you, you talk about the your introduction to those wines and just beautiful wines and, and how everyone wasn't drinking Jura, but now they are. Mm-hmm. It's such a cool moment. It is a cool moment for them. Tell me how then, well, first off, I like how you delineate. You say some, some people just want to drink and it's okay. Like you're very clear about that and I like that. Kind of like levels it out. It makes it not feel like there's any kind of like right or wrong. Sometimes you just want a Malbec from mm-hmm. Argentina and you're at the airport lounge and that's what you want. You get and you and, want. And more power to them because I can't do that. That's when I order martini. <laughs> right. If it's only one Malbec from Argentina. Right, no. <laughs> but I am curious. I am, but I but I don't know anything because I'm very scared. I'm scared about doing the wrong thing. I'm scared about, I guess, paying too much maybe. I don't know. Right. what. How do you treat I've, that? It, you know, that's a philosophical question that I'm always asking myself about why is wine so intimidating and what can be done to make it less intimidating without being simple? Uh, the money factor is a big deal. I think the fact that there's so much elite marketing around wine is a disservice. If we, people really viewed it as an agricultural product, where one gets one shot, if one really one shot at this magical thing, I think that would spark a certain curiosity and a sense of exploration where perhaps it's less intimidating. If people understood that they don't have to spend a fortune, right now, though, it is really hard to get a bottle of wine to drink that you want to drink at under $15, and that is a pity. Mm-hmm. That's truly difficult. Um, up up to 18 but still for a lot of people, they're going to say, who are interested in wine, yeah, I can do that. Is it because of taxes? Is it because of uh, costs of the world, everything in the world? What, why, why can't we get great wines for under 15? It is the cost of production. Yeah. It is the cost of production, especially a local wine. 
United States uh, real estate is really expensive. That's actually one reason people are going to Vermont. It's a little bit less expensive there. Uh, it's easier from the old world, the so-called old world. It's easier from Georgia where land is not that expensive. So go where land is not expensive and you can do better. But even in Burgundy where, you know, go to this old old lesson that my first mentor called the young wine collector who's not so young anymore mm. <laughs> told me just go, especially in Burgundy, buy the least, the, the wine you can afford the most from a great producer. Smart. You mentioned Vermont because you, you, you kind of say a lot of great things about wine in mm-hmm. Vermont and you're such a fan. You have less kind things to say about wine in Long Island, yes, which, right. I, which I love. You, you, these are real takes, right? Tell me about Vermont wine. Vermont is truly exciting to me because it is, in the memoir, I talk about it as a, a local wine done right. So it very much annoys me what Long Island did, and I think they are still trying to work out of it. They try to imitate Bordeaux. They thought they were Bordeaux because they're in the same longitude. And they're not Bordeaux. And nor should, and because they were out in the Atlantic. But they tr- picked a style and tried to emulate it. What Vermont is doing is they're growing grapes that grow that should be able to grow in Vermont. They're hybrids. They're not vinifera like Merlot and mm-hmm. Pinot Noir. Not they're, name brand grapes that are going to sell exactly. themselves. Yep. Yeah, they have names like Brianna or Marquette. And they're making wine simply with no oak influence. And a lot of them are made in glass, even glass or food grade plastic, some in old oak, and just allowed to be simply what they are. There's a lot of people farming beautifully, and that makes a difference to me too. Yeah, absolutely. The agriculture and the farming um, is so paramount. And we, we, when you go to a winery with, that you know grows their own grapes, you're, you're, you're seeing right. the, the vastness mm-hmm. of the agriculture. Uh, a couple of Vermont wines that we could search out? Yeah, um, Ellison Estate, which is about to go a little bit national. Um, La Garagista, of course. There is a new cooperative called Calce, and they're giving their first release. Mm. They're um, a social, like basically a co-op in socialist co-op, and what they're going to be doing is super interesting up there. Uh, if you can find the wines of Max Rose under the name under the label Chertok. Mm-hmm. And how am I buying these wines? Am I am I going to Astra Center to name one of many retailers? La, Gar- La Garagista is pretty wildly available. Um, I think the best thing to do is go on just search. Yeah, and you'll find your your econ your retailer. Yeah. I think about walking vineyards, and and you know I grew up in West Michigan. There's plenty of vineyards there, and there's a, a burgeoning wine scene there. But I think about the vastness of these vineyards, and I think about the climate change. Mm. And I want to just get your take just Right. Well, that's broadly. one reason Vermont is so great. And I tell my friends in California, time to think of Vermont. You're going to be safe from fires for at least a while. Fires I mean, fires is, is in particular something that can affect uh, a wine-growing region, right? Well, yeah. You can get your vines going up in flame. So that's kind of bad. Uh, hmm. and, and even if they're not going up in flames— Smoke taint is a real thing. So if the fires happen while the fruit is still on the vine, you will have to handle those grapes very carefully. And you get a wide range of bacony mm. char, <laughs> 
two, I, you really have to get it off the skins as soon as possible. Mm. And so there is something you can do. But is climate change really going to change the way we drink wine? Oh, without a doubt. It's terrifying. Right now in, in France, to take a look at a lot of the grapes that are are sunburned and reducing, it will re- be reducing yields. It will lower the acidity. It will at some point, at some point to go back to Burgundy, they're not going to be able to grow Pinot Noir there. Mm. It's too sensitive. It's not a hot weather grape. So what are they doing? What are the producers? Are they gr- are they replanting? Are they, what is their uh, firewall uh, punted against uh, well, destroying? All, all over Europe, there is a lot of experimentation. With, they are hybrid grapes. They call them PVs. Um, they're not sold on whether they're going to be pulling out, especially when you have paid uh like $2 million an acre, mm. it's kind of difficult to uh, just pull out all of your old vine uh, pinot. But there's a lot of really good work being done with changing farm- farming, raising the canopy. And here we're getting into maybe geeky stuff that maybe not everybody wants to hear, but there's a lot of stuff you can do in the way you farm that vine that can affect and give it um, protection from the Great. sun and the heat before they were struggling to ripen it and now they've got to they have to you know, prune it and get a canopy over the grapes so they keep it in an umbrella that will help a lot so much more labor though doing it so that much way more. yeah you write about your Jewish background and identity throughout the book. Mm-hmm. You grew up in a modern Orthodox household. Modern Orthodox, something yeah. that I don't think exists anymore. Yeah, it is pretty. So everything delineated. is polarized. Yeah, yeah polarized—that's the word. But I, uh, I do want to talk about you. You, you kind of talk about like the idea of the junket and and how you'll you know take press trips only when necessary. And you're very independent. But you did write about a press trip that you took to Poland for the company Belvedere and this junket, and you en- end up freezing your ass off at Birkenau. Yeah. This, <laughs> I mean, it's just absurd to say it out loud that you're on a press it trip does. and you end up at Birkenau, but I feel, as I've taken junkets myself, but you, as a reporter, you find you find the story. Talk about that scene in the book when you're right. at Birkenau. The reason that I was persuaded to go on this press trip was because my friend, we traveled a lot together, was she really wanted to go to Auschwitz. And I'm, I, you know, Googled to see what was going on in Auschwitz these days, and it looked like a fancy museum that I wanted to know part of. And I said, oh, please, 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 when will we go if we're not going? Okay, fine. So only if we go to Birkenau. So at this point, we had separated from the press trip. We, the press trip was up in Warsaw, and... We all did go down to Krakow. For a citrus-flavored Belvedere? Yes, for the citrus (laughs) (laughs) flavor. And, uh, yeah, we took the day off, and we hired a car, and we went to the camps. And Auschwitz was exactly what I expected. And the, the barrack that was dedicated to the Jews that perished was closed. Was, it was, it was, um, Still, when I think about it, I still shake my head. So we went to Birkenau, and it started to snow. We were the only people there, which was perfect. That was what I wanted. It was this amazing—I mean, you get to walk through a concentration camp with no one there in the snow, with the barracks um, and the the chimney from the crematory just stuck in the snow because it had been bombed out. It was just chilling. But at one point, we went through the barracks. We you see all the scribblings, the the graffiti, 
not I was trying to summon like I could read some Yiddish. It was anyways go out and we start walking and cannot find a way out. We absolutely cannot. Trapped in a concentration camp. There was barbed wire all over the place, and there's one way out, and we could not find the way out. And there was no one there. It was getting dark. It was getting getting very dark, but not – it was the middle of the day. But because it was starting to snow and the sky was really getting black, so our taxi driver was there, but he – you know, he's sleeping in the car. Mm -hmm. So it was just this moment of of terror where you know it's unrealistic – but you feel like you're trapped in some sort of somebody else's film, and you were going to die. We were getting really, really cold. So, I mean, actually— The irony. The irony of it all. Being on a citrus-flavored vodka press trip and dying at Birkenau. Right. I came back, and I wrote about it immediately. And a lot of the stories in the memoir come from pieces that I never published. It's obvious that you have a lot of other stories outside of these ones, but these ones are the ones you've held for a while. Yeah. Did you find those stories percolating just through the pandemic, being in isolation? Was that part of the like the catharsis that you that you give? Because I, I again, this book I read in two days. It's just so compelling. Your stories. You know, I every time I finish a book, I don't know how I wrote it. I don't know how that happened. It's I don't know whether you have that experience, but it's. I knew, I didn't even know, I had one story. I don't write from an outline, but of course I had to do an outline to write the proposal. Uh, I, I can't really explain yeah. how, how, I, how I did it, but I knew that one part about writing about this story was that I had helped to write my cousin's memoir of surviving Medanek and... Um, in and out of the Warsaw Ghetto. And I wanted to write this particular one for her and my relationship to her. And I, that, that's one reason. Yeah, and, and, and you, you write so uh, colorfully about that, that escape and, and some of the, the terrible realities that your family experienced. Mm. Your father is an interesting character and in the, in the acknowledgments, you, you acknowledge that he, uh, that maybe you didn't give him the, the full full time he deserved and maybe you will at a future time but he's such a character he is such a character Um, my favorite essay is Dad's Last Gift which involves uh, you breaking into his uh, filing cabinet after he had passed (laughs) away Um, but I want to ask you about to be honest I want to ask you about Burns Steakhouse because (laughs) in Tampa Florida I've always wanted to visit Burns Steakhouse and 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 anyone I looked at the PDF of the wine list last night because I was just like this wine list is special and and odd to me, just the way it's laid out. But tell me, tell us about Burns Steakhouse. Actually, I should I should go back to I should look at see see what they have left. Yeah, Burns Steakhouse is a legendary steakhouse with one of the most incredible wine lists in the country. And for listeners who've gone to San Sebastian and ever gone to Recondo, mm-hmm. it's kind of the Recondo of the United States. It is deep. It is old. It is shockingly packed with bargains. Now, this is a place that Robert Parker used to go all the time and buy, you know, like have these, as they would call them, big whale, 
you know, like big investor kind of people mm. are going and spending a lot of money. But I'm with my brother who doesn't really get what I do. And I know, you know, when I'm probably buying, even though he's a cardiologist, and, you know, and it's going to be, have to be in a budget. But besides that, there is, so I look in some place like that, I look for something old and something curious from a good vineyard. And of course, this was in 2004, but for $32, there was this bottle of 1982 Cloth Alibert um, that was shocking. You know, and it was probably going to be old, too old, and it was. Yeah, you said that it was too old and, and didn't, didn't quite land the way you wanted it. But I looked at the list, and there's like Burgundy from the 90s mm-hmm. and on, you know, below 100 bucks. I mean, right. And there's, I'd be curious to see if there's anything still there between under 50. Yeah. It probably is. There, there might be old Rieslings like Cabinet, not very fancy things, but there's always, if you know what you're looking for, and today it's easy, you pull out your phone and you Google it. That is my tip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and see ageable, ageable Cabinet, like what could, you know, something like that. But if it is from a good producer, it probably can at least give you some information. And if a wine is cheap enough, it's worth it to check it out. And it's in Tampa, Florida of all places. And it's Tampa. It's got to be some tax, tax dodge or something. That's why it's there. I, I don't know. I'm, I might be just really discounting it. No, a, it's a, been there forever and it was just a wine lover. Yeah. And it's cavernous. I mean, they roast their own coffee there. I remember the food not being really good. Yeah, it's it's always on like the, some of the men's mags lists and there's always some kind of um, narrative around it. But... Um, Let's talk about the absence of natural wine from this memoir because it's there, but it's kind of in the margins because you wrote a book about natural wine for 10 Speed Press and that that you wrote that book. But this Mm – I feel like natural wine as a topic is not covered. Um, But I want to know about natural wine right now because – the hashtag nattyization, and mm-hmm. I joke because that's basically like how people respond to natural wine now. It's like a meme, right? You know, in the mainstream. My question simply is: Is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? The fact that you know influencers of all types know about natural wine now. I'm going to take this as a two-part question. Yes. So, I don't talk about natural wine in it because it's. Yeah, it's a wine book, but it's not a wine book. And I've covered how I got into it. And it's it's there about how I got into wine is basically how I got into natural wine. I don't need to beat that. It's no longer new. But all of the wines or practically all the wines recommended in the book are natural. I just feel I don't have to talk about it. They're all just great wines. Yeah. Now, as about new influencer hmm. <laughs> natural wine, it's about going back to, it might as well, hmm, I don't want to get into too much trouble here. Please. Please get into trouble. Please. I mean, not trouble, but like, you know, it's going, back. it's what, what's old is new again. Sure. And it's, natural wine is being reduced to a style, to producers putting their wines into clear bottles so they could show off the colors. It's like the F words, fizzy, funk, all those things. And that is not, that is a beverage that's fun, that's fine, but that's not the kind of wine that, that moves me. And so I don't like Natty wine. <laughs> and Thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think I had hoped that by 2022, we would be at a point where natural wine is just wine. 
and it has had its effect. There's a lot more wine moving over to natural without saying it, just by going native ferment, taking their foot off the gas of sulfur, not using additives, a lot more like that. But the whole natural wine scene, it's being pushed as we're at the party with the party movement and like, okay, fine, you know, but it's not White Claw. It isn't. I would say from my point of view, and I'm not a, I don't drink, but as a net positive, just talking about wine is a good thing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yes. as opposed to not talking about wine, talking about White Claw. So hashtag Natty Wine might get, it might be a gateway. Push back, please. If Maybe. I'm- well, actually, it could be the same way if I order a Chardonnay. It's the same thing. If you don't have the curiosity to know exactly what natural wine is or to go back to the farming because natural wine for me is very much about farming, and then you'll never know. You know, I, I don't necessarily believe that you get into great wine by starting out in crap wine. <laughs> uh, I just, in fact, sometimes you get so used to crap wine if you're given something that's really energetic and lively, you don't know how to deal with it. Uh, some people can jump, you know, some of those fish can jump out of the pond, you know, by themselves. I I think about, I was brought up at the modern Orthodox Jewish home. My, my mother was a 1950s housewife um, who, you know, was a shtetl cook. It was crappy. I mean, she actually was good. but anyway. Was there some colant in your uh, household? No, no, no. We didn't have any colant because yeah. I don't know why. Thank God. But I stopped eating meat when I was 16. Yeah, so right. that really helped. But the first time I had Indian food out of a house that had absolutely no spice in it, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I remember being at the India Sweet House in Inman Square in Massachusetts, mm. Somerville. And just, what is this fabulous thing? Now, I didn't know how to seek that out. And so some people are going to do that with wine. Yeah. What makes crap wine? Uh, What makes crap wine is crap viticulture and then making wine to a style. Yes. So so certainly technical stuff. And for the natural wine, sloppy stuff. There's a lot of stuff that's quick into the bottle, and I don't care what kind of one to use people who are saying, no, natural wine isn't bacterial swamp, but now— yeah, there's a lot of stuff that are bacterial swamps and they're being mm. passed off as natural wine. Well, that's enough to turn anybody off, except some people thinking if it's natural, it's good, we'll like it. Oh, there's always like that that drinker that they're searching for that right. that, that, that this bacterial swamp might actually. Right. Not saying there isn't room for some flaw, that it doesn't have to be perfection, but there are some things that would never have been put in a bottle 15 years ago. As a non-drinker, I wonder, is there a future for non-alcoholic wine? Because I think on the beer side, I love Athletic. I like what they're doing with the NA beers, and there is a real flavor profile. Is does is there a future with alcohol-free wine? I think that beer is in a different category. Sure. I think that's some of those because, you know, it is something that can be made um, weekly, you know, and it is a beverage. Um, there's a lot people do drink for a certain flavor profile. Um, not necessarily the story. Are they doing any sour beers? That they are. are. There's some. There's some IPAs, and there's are some sours. Are those as successful? I, I mean, probably not. I, I haven't done the research, but I would imagine that the the like lighter IPAs are, are yeah. and the pilsners are probably yeah. the most popular NA beers. But the I mean, wine is dealkalized, so it's 
it's going through a real extreme process to get that alcohol out. Some people tell me there's a future. It, <laughs> I guess there, it, there is. You know, you want to be sociable. You want a glass of wine with people. You can't drink, but you want, you know, there, there probably are some non, actually, I'm just thinking about this right now, some mm-hmm. non-alcoholic aperitif wines. I think that one can do a vermouth. Is there any non-alcoholic? Is there vermouth out there? I think that hey, that's a great idea. I think there's an a like Netphony Negroni is a product right. that I really like personally. Yes. So there's there's definitely some vermouth yeah. happening yeah, in there. But, but for wine that is really about exploring where it is, I'm afraid there's all we can hope for is really low alcohol wine. Yeah, it, it's a great answer because it, it is a different product from beer, and I, mm. I appreciate the way you've laid it out um, without judgment because I think. Um, you are talking about the viticulture and the aging and the production in your appreciation of wine. It's not simply what's in the glass. So I, it makes sense why you would be like, maybe not to that to my question. Right. But I think mocktails or whatever we're going to call them, I don't know, could probably do better than mocktails. Hmm. But um, th- those are pretty good. Those well, the, could be tasty. There's something about the acidity of like a Chablis or even a Cabernet, an old Cabernet Riesling, to me, um, that can be... That's, I, I, you know, for me, that was interesting, just the way that that oh, hit. That, yeah, but then, you, you know, there's that evolution, it, the evolution of what happens to that fruit, but yet the acidity is always going to be there, so it comes out even more in a way. So that's not going to be able to happen, so I'm sorry. No, it's 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 probably going to be, the code will be cracked. <laughs> so, Alice, where are you traveling next? I, I feel like I want to always know, just after reading this book and following you on social, like, where are you going Okay. Well, the book is here, so I've got to do promotion sure. stuff. So, uh, and it's also the summer, so I'll be, you know, dealing with that. That doesn't count. What also doesn't count, or maybe does count, is that I'm going to Iceland. Mm. Iceland for five days in September, and hopefully we'll have a book event there. But it's mostly celebrating a friend's birthday. I'm dying to go to Japan. I was supposed to go to Japan before the pandemic to do a story on sake. And then, of course, March 2020 happened. So I did the story. I didn't get to go to any breweries. I'm dying to go to Haketo and go to the wineries there. Wonderful. I want to close. We ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a book without the burden of time, meaning there would be no deadline, Mm -hmm. or budget, meaning you'd have unlimited funds to produce this book, what would that book be, Alice? Do I only get one? You can do two. Okay. Uh, well, you can no, do I'm going to do three. Well, the book that I didn't just because I didn't have the money and the one that will always be very sad to me is the history of the dairy restaurant. Now, Ben Catcher did it and, you know, is a graphic book, but I really wanted to do that. So I think a lot of the people I wanted to interview are dead now. I don't read Yiddish. So, These are um, the kosher restaurants of the early 20th century, going back further maybe? Uh, yeah, I'd like to know when they started. Yeah. Um, but also the heyday in the 60s and the 70s. And the, yeah, I guess they're all gone by the early 90s. As a piece of New York culture that is gone, and I just want people to know about them. Let's see. I would like to get to work on the screenplay of this memoir. Yeah. Okay. That's what yeah. I'm going to do. So, uh, so. Is there going to be one? Uh, 
Well, I think it may be up to me to pitch, and I would like to develop it. I've been thinking a lot about how I would do it and wondering whether I had the time to do it. Yeah. So I don't know. And the other thing is, you know, it's always, as a writer, I have one novel that is in the drawer that needs its 15th rewrite. But I just started a new novel that I need time and money for to at least. So fiction is definitely on your mind. So fiction, yeah. Alice Firing, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.